With all that's going on in Ukraine, it may be hard for folks in the US and Europe to remember that there are several countries at war around the world where civilians are targeted, food and shelter are in short supply, and government leaders seem indifferent to the suffering they've caused. Ukrainians are not the only refugees hoping for the assistance of strangers in other nations. In Ethiopia, a war has raged since November 2020, pitting the Ethiopian government against a former ally in the northern region of Tigray. Troops from neighboring Eritrea have entered the fray, as well as paramilitary groups from regions bordering Tigray. All sides have been accused of committing war crimes and engaging in rape and other sexual violence as a tool of war. Millions are experiencing the effects of famine and starvation is a very real possibility. Why don't more people know about this conflict in the West and why were African and Middle Eastern refugees treated so very different than Ukrainian refugees are being treated today? I'm gonna to put these questions to today's guests, UIC anthropologist, Dr. Sabine Mohammed. So let's get started in the politics classroom recorded on March 10th, 2022. Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and I can be found on Twitter at Dr. Floros. Also check out the podcast companion website at thepoliticsclassroom.org. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Sabine Mohammed to the classroom today. Dr. Mohammed is a bridge to faculty postdoctoral research associate in the anthropology department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She received a master's degree in political science and Islamic studies with a minor in anthropology from the University of Heidelberg and a PhD in anthropology also at the University of Heidelberg. She is the author or co-author of several publications in English and German, and she is the elected convener of the European Association of Sociocultural Anthropology's Network of Contemporary Anthropological Theory. She is currently teaching a course on violence, race, and unruly bodies for the anthropology department at UIC. Dr. Sabine Mohammed, welcome to the politics classroom. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. The topics you study, race, blackness, empire, refugees, why did you choose to focus on those topics? That's really a great question because when I started off in my last years of my undergrad, I was really interested in studying forms of pluralism in Indonesia when it comes to kind of forms of Islam. Mm -hmm. And I moved on to Egypt because I also did my, I was learning classical Arabic at the time. So I was kind of more in the, in the Asian corridor and, or invested in the Asian corridor, if you can say it as broad as that. I remember I was about to write my master's thesis and there was this dissident or he was a really high profile ranking political officer within the Eritrean government okay and he 
apparently was very sick and he felt guilty about all the aspects that he has done for the Eritrean government. And so uh, I think in his last month before he passed away, he did a tour through Europe. And I was based in Germany at that time. And people said, you know, some friends of mine were like, oh, he's coming. Do you want to kind of interview him? Because I was also a journalist. <laughs> anyway, I was really interested in journalism. So I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, so I, I kind of started to talk to him and we had this four hour long conversation and wow. he talked about finance and money and um, how Eritrea and the diaspora were so deeply intertwined. And um, after I looked at all that material, I just thought I'll have to you know, write my thesis on, on Eritrea, which is a country just north of uh, Ethiopia and East Africa. Yeah, and after that, basically, I got so interested in the East African context that I was kind of looking, so my thesis I wrote about how a guerrilla movement, such as the Eritrean Liberation Front, actually consolidated its power after Eritrea's independence in 1993 from Ethiopia and became this kind of authoritarian party apparatus with the president on top of it. And at the same time, Ethiopia, the big neighbor with now almost 115 million people, had also to decide its fate new, right? Because it lost Eritrea as its former province. And I got really interested in how actually a country of that size has now to reckon with a, a new form of consolidation. And that's how I decided to work on Ethiopia. And Ethiopia had a really interesting way of uh, trying to reconfigure people, the idea of people. And they introduced that model of ethnic citizenship. So that basically means that when they remapped the whole country, which is really a huge country, they said that citizenship is now, you can require, acquire citizenship through ethnic affiliation. So in order to be a citizen of the state, you had to have an ethnic identity. And really? Because, yes. <laughs> wow. So that was, that okay. was pretty, you know, that was a pretty... A radical move. And, and they did that because they said all these minorities had historically been oppressed or not visible within, Ethiop within Ethiopian state politics. And that that new government in 1993 actually wanted to uh, encounter that uh, and empower people by saying that they now have their ethnicity and that that also means that they can speak in, in their language, uh, etc. And of course, that totally backfired uh, <laughs> 20 years from now. Uh, but then I got interested in how do you actually do that? You know, how do you remap a country and say that there are now nine ethnic states Right. And the people in these federal states have to now come together as these ethnic subjects. And so that's basically how I started to think about forms of ethnicity and forms of racialization that were installed officially to yeah, empower the population and, and kind of to make sure that that would ease some of the tensions, uh, historical tensions that have been so prevalent in the country. Yeah, and another thing that they were that the government was really interested in was infrastructure, right? So they thought that in order to gain more political legitimacy in the country, that they would have to invest in forms of infrastructure. And that became really tied to that idea of ethnicity and forms of race and infrastructure. So you could see even 
where people got houses and what roads were connected and what roads were not connected. And so in this regard, uh, I decided to, to study how this plays out in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia's capital that was basically the showcase for the Ethiopian state, a model, you know, for the whole country. One problem were always those Eritreans, right? <laughs> because in all of this kind of configuration and theorization about how do we actually make sure that a nation building process comes to fruition, you had, I don't know, like so many Eritreans that were born and raised in Ethiopia and that spoke the same language and you couldn't really distinguish. And so I, I was really trying to work with these tensions of um, racial inscription and how uh, then those people were deported at one point and returned to uh, Ethiopia. And so anyway, it's a long story, but basically I'm interested, that, that's how I got interested in how we think about race in places that are not located in a U.S. context and that are outside of European formations, you know. Yeah. So you were raised and educated in Germany, but now you live and work in the United States. Yes. And I would imagine that ideas and perceptions of race are different in those two contexts. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, how Germany so in the United States, we have all these racial tensions because of our horrific history and you know lack of opportunity and a whole bunch of other things, white supremacy. So I'm wondering how blackness, otherness in Germany manifests, because I've only ever heard people talk about the Turkish minority in Germany, but clearly there are people from other places that have ended up in Germany as well. So, so kind of what's the the perception or the manifestation of how race is thought about and talked about in Germany and how does that compare with those things in the United States? I love that question. <laughs> I really do. Because I think we could talk about this forever just because it's so generative to think about how we make sense of these forms of othering and racialization, right? Regardless of whether we use the term race or not. But I think it's very productive to think through race and how it kind of plays out uh, in different geographies. You know, it's also so interesting that if you think about the dominance of, an Amer of the American discourse regarding race, right, that there is a clear understanding of how we think about Blackness in the U.S. and how Blackness kind of has to map on to other contexts. And, and, and that already shows, we already find or see tensions when we think about the Americas, right? And how race is being configured there from Brazil to the Domin Dominican Republic to mm -hmm. Haiti and all these kind of contexts. But if you ask me about Germany, I think it's, it's, it's particularly interesting because Germany, after the Second World War and after the Holocaust, um, I think it's now almost championed as this like master of having this memorial culture, right? Worldwide, globally, that it has all these kind of instantiations of remembering uh, the Shoah and, and, and this dictum of never again. But what happened at the same time is actually this 
almost uncanny fear of that return of this form of severe violence and, and, and mass atrocities that played out in Europe. So for the longest time, within a popular discourse in Germany, but really also an academic discourse uh, within Germany, that race became almost this taboo, right? Um, and so people really said that you can talk about race because race is not real. <laughs> so, okay. You know, and, and I think it's, I think in the US, everyone knows also it's a, it's a social contra a con a construct, but there was also this fear that if you start to talk about race, it's kind of too close to some to the history uh, within Germany and the reckoning of the of the Auschwitzes, right? right. That, uh, um, that were there were so many concentration camps in Germany. Almost every every city had like a, a detention camp and and some form of some style of camp. So in some way, you see that race has been almost uh, negated in, in in a public discourse, and it's just coming. To, to terms with it now. So you have a lot of conversations about uh, blackness in Germany, not only Turkish guest worker histories, but also that Germany, for example, you would never learn about the 1884-85 Berlin conference, which was so crucial. This was the, uh, the um, scramble for Africa, right? When Absolutely. The, okay. Yeah. And, and, and so it took place in Berlin and Basically, that's when the fate of the, uh, the African continent was decided upon and divided in, in, in all these different parts. Now, there is no part of it in, in the German curriculum to talk about Germans' involvement because also it hasn't been, it didn't, it hadn't been as successful as the French and the, the British, right? Uh, in some ways of colonizing parts of Africa or the Pacific. So it's not only about not remembering the Berlin Conference and the, the role Germany played within the scramble for Africa, but really also how there was, that there was actually a, a relation between Africa and Germany that reaches back to the 15th century and a presence of Black lives in Germany that has not been reckoned with in, in the German kind of national archive or, or forms of memorization. For example, there's... Amos, he was a, a philosopher, you know, he was kind of brought from Ghana to, to Germany and wrote actually about the role of the black, of black people <laughs> and in legal terms. Hmm. And so there are all these kind of snippets of black history in Germany that uh, just don't find enough space to be talked about. And I think there's now within the last 20 years, uh, a conversation about what it means to speak about race and blackness in Germany. And I think one really crucial movement was the black feminist movement uh, in the 80s. They kind of came together <laughs> and in, in very interesting ways. So you have, you have these black feminists, often lesbian women uh, from East Germany and, and in West Germany and kind of reunited with the fall of the Berlin Wall and started to kind of do all that kind of historical work on their own history. So one seminal book is Showing Our True Colors uh, that was published in 1986. 
that basically is the coming together of all these histories uh, of colonialism and, and German influence in, in, in Africa, but also forms of poetry and how these women kind of were reckoning with their belonging. Uh, and they called themselves Afro-German, which is very interesting for that time. But at the same time, it was also connected to all these discourses in the US. So Audre Lorde, for example, was a very crucial person and she came in the 80s to Berlin and she kind of was interested in, in that feminist, black feminist movement. And you see that there are also all these interesting ways of intervening in a, a very white German history. And seeing Black people just as something that is a recent phenomenon that's tied to refugees, but uh, rather mm -hmm. that there is this longer arc, a long durée um, of colonialism, of the Mediterranean Sea as this form, as this connector between Africa and Europe. So basically what I'm saying is that we have to kind of not only look to the Black Atlantic, to the shores of the Atlantic, but really also more globally, what a global blackness can look in different parts of the world, such as in Germany or in Ethiopia. listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and my guest in the classroom today is UIC anthropologist Dr. Sabine Mohammed. Okay, I want to talk about Ethiopia and Eritrea. A lot of your work looks at Eritrean refugees or Eritreans in Ethiopia, some of whom are refugees, is that right? And some of whom were born and raised in Ethiopia, but are of Eritrean descent. Is that right? Okay. So my mind is still a little bit blown about let's racialize people in order to build our country. Because right, isn't, didn't Rwanda try, aren't they trying to do the exact opposite of like, you can never put on your identity cards, which group you came from even though that was also made up, but it sounds like Ethiopia is going the other direction, right? Where, I mean, so what about people who are not from those nine groups or Eritrea? I mean, there's gotta be other people in the country besides them too. So what, what happens to them? Yeah, so that's the, the whole crux. First of all, I think your comparison with Rwanda is perfect because it is basically just the other coin of it. While Rwanda said after 1994, we are so past race that we won't allow anyone to identify along these lines of Hutu and Tutsi anymore. You have the same uh, motif in, in, the, in Eritrea in 1993 when it became independent from Ethiopia, that Eritrea basically said, in order to build our nation state, we will disavow forms of ethnicity and how people relate to their villages. 
right? Mm -hmm. There has to be an Eritrean identity, which has then become a way of totally militarizing that country, but it created a sense of Eritreanness. In Ethiopia, a huge country with, you know, 115 million people and over 80 languages and even more ideas of ethnic belonging and forms of identity. The real question was in the 90s, how do we actually unite all these different peoples with the different languages that they have and, and forms of heritage and ancestry and ethnicity? And there were a lot of student movements in the 70s in Ethiopia, especially in the capital city in Addis Ababa. They were trying to think about what form, what political form of governance is it actually that would allow us to live in some form of unity, right? An idea of Ethiopia that's not hegemonic. Because what happened before was that one ethnic group basically dominated the whole country. And also that language was the same. And that ethnic group was uh, the group of Amhara. And they spoke Amharic, which is until today, the official, one of the official languages in Ethiopia. So those student movements, there were several of them, some kind of Marxist-Leninist movements. I mean, it's the 70s. <laughs> um, you could also have like some Maoist kind of splinter groups. But they were saying, ah, it's actually, you know, we have to acknowledge the diversity and the forms of self-determination of the people. So the ideas already came from the 70s up until the 90s, where then this new government came into power and said, Okay, you know, and it is interestingly enough, it is a socialist kind of model of creating that ethnic federal state of brother states, you know, that just basically recognizes differences. But the way they did it is basically remapping the country uh, along ethno-linguistic lines. Okay. And uh, there's one region in the south, uh, it's basically, basically called Southern People and Nationalities. <laughs> that you know, and it kind of has almost 50 form, you know, 50 kinds of ethnic groups within that. So obviously the, it, it's a total artificial construct. Sure. It makes more sense in the northern part where you see Tigray and people speak Tigrinya, or you have Amha the Amhara region and people speak Amharic. But it's still mind-blowing because if you look back, you have a period where the idea of the people is constructed to an idea through um, an economic logic of feudalism and land ownership, right? And um, there was no idea of ethnicity. Obviously, there was there were people that were racialized, especially in the southern part. Then you have from the 70s to the 90s, the socialist military government that basically said, now, if we think about the people, we have to think about it as peasants and the vanguard of like a new class okay and then you have the 90s that kind of says no actually in order to create the people in a new nation we have to think about ethnicity we have to recognize race and ethnicity it's basically affirmative action right <laughs> just that in order to have affirmative action you have to say that these people now have to identify themselves as such and is this largely a function of the fact, so the coalition that overthrew the Derg, right, that was the communist leadership, was led by the Tigrayans, right, which is an ethnic minority yeah. who had been excluded for a long time. And while they still made up 
what is it, like six or seven percent of the Ethiopian population, they were the the rebel group that was able to hold a big enough coalition together to overthrow the government. And if they're in power, numerically they couldn't sustain that, I would imagine. But if you say we're going to recognize the ethnicities, then they're going to have power, at least in their region, even if they don't hold it in the center of the government. That was exactly the logic. Okay. And, And you totally got to the heart of it. So what happened, if I can just talk a little bit history there, um, I hope I don't bore too many people. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) What you had in 1974, Emperor Haile Selassie, who was the emperor of Ethiopia, that defined itself as this Ethiopian Orthodox Christian empire, was overthrown by the Dirk, which is a socialist slash communist, but really military junta. And so when they came into power in 1974, they basically said, now we have to, they had they proposed this idea of uh, Ethiopia first, which basically is we will socialize the country and it will all be like, we will have vanguard elites, party elites, we have peasantry, but they are educated. So uh, you had at the same time student movements and you have the military. They both kind of wanted to overthrow Haile Selassie, the emperor at that time, because they thought no more feudalism. Feudalism was killing the country. And so you have a a one student movement kind of aligned with the military because they said, okay, you know, we will go along with them because just for the time being until a civilian leadership can come into power. (laughs) While the other student movement party was completely uh, erased, you know, um, not erased, but uh, prosecuted killed and and kind of perched out of the city. Uh, The other student party then actually realized that they might have, they might have gone into coalition with the devil. So they kind of also split from it and they also got prosecuted. So what you see then in the late uh, 1970s, that all these like intellectual student movements either were prosecuted, killed, or had to flee the capital city. And what happened actually is that most of these guerrilla movements became these ethno-nationalist parties because they went to their own regions. So you have all these kind of Tigrayan movements in Tigray, the TPLF party. Then you have all these Eritreans who were also, you know, in, in universities in Addis Ababa, who also fled to Eritrea, which was at that time a province of Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and the Oromo movement. So what started off as a student movement became really fast a ethno-nationalist guerrilla movement in some ways, mm-hmm. but also peasantry, uh, especially in Tigray. That's why one of the reasons why one could argue that the TPLF party has been so strong because they managed actually to include the peasant movement as well. Mm-hmm. So then you have... Uh, of fighting going on everywhere in the country. Right. You have the South with the Oromo Liberation Front, and then you have Somalia coming in at some weird time. (laughs) And it kind of all weakened the Dirk at that time, right? All this fighting. Wasn't there this weird, like, the United States actually supported them even though they were Marxist because (laughs) the Soviet Union was supporting Somalia, and so the U.S. had... Okay, yeah, but it shifted so many times. Right? And, <laughs> yeah, but okay. you're right. The U.S. did support at some point the Dirk. 
but the Dirk also had Cubans coming in, fighting <laughs> off the Somali party. So it was just like this weird thing. And all these movements, the liberation movements, were all Marxist, Leninist, or Maoist. So you don't have much differentiation when it comes to what is it that the political line of these parties would be. None of them, you know, like in Vietnam, where you say they align more with liberal democratic understanding. Either way, so you see that the country kind of started to weaken over the 80s and 90s. And the TPLF party, the Tigrayan party, and one of the Eritrean parties, they actually started a, an alliance, right? And they both were fighting against the, the Dirk at that time. So when the Soviet Union falls down, so there is no, you know, the, the interesting part about this history is that we learn there is no small history. It's all world history because it's it's so deeply connected. Mm -hmm. When the Soviet Union crashes, basically, or falls apart, you also have not enough funding for the, the Dirk Party because they still were kind of supported by the Dirk and by the GDR, the German Democratic Party. So you have these two parties strategically in alliance. And it, if you know a little bit about the geography in Tigray and Eritrea, it's very yeah. mountainous. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult for the Ethiopian soldiers or federal army to kind of really invade these parts. And, and until now, we see that that's one of the problems. If you think about invading Tigray, it's, it's very, it's a semi-arid kind of um, geography. And yeah, so basically they kind of crushed the Dirk because the Dirk lost a lot of power uh, fighting against Oromo and uh, Siad Baris Somalia party and um, when they came into power they were basically uh, Eritrea uh, had deemed to become independent an independent country and the Tigrayan party said basically yes okay <laughs> we will grant you your independence and it was then really in the hands of the TPLF party to run the country in Ethiopia. Okay wait a minute wait a minute so the Eritreans and the Tigrayans were united against the Derg yeah. But the Eritreans wanted independence. And so the war between Ethiopia and the Eritreans was against the Derg. Yeah. And then after independence, though, the Tigrayans become the leading, the head of the new government. But then there's a border war with independent Eritrea who were their former allies. Yes. Which is absolutely mind blowing. So what you see is what you see is there was um, an idea of self determination that you see a, a lot in these kind of liberation movements. That not only did they want to kind of fight against the Ethiopian government, which was at that time the, the dictatorship of the Dirk, but also an understanding that they have been so alienated from the central government that mm -hmm. they wanted to have determination, and the TPLF party had a manifesto in 1976 where they actually said that their main ultimate goal is also independence. But they really kind of broke away from it very fast, whereas in Eritrea, Eritrea has been colonized by Italy um, for some time. So there has been some kind of autonomy already. Mm -hmm. yes. And because Eritrea is on the Red Sea, it also had all these kind of um, trade relationships along the Indian Ocean and had already always been a little bit more autonomous uh, okay. for different reasons. With Tigray, it was always, a, it was always connected more, if sure. you could say that. Yeah. Either way, um, 
when they decided in 1991, the Dirk was overthrown. Uh, Eritrea was really heavily involved in Ethiopia still uh, because it was part of the province. And then I think in 1993, when Eritrea was granted to hold a referendum um, for independence, it got its independence. And a lot of Ethiopians, and that's actually part of my research, were really frustrated that Ethiopia separated in their words from Ethiopia, you know, because it also meant that they lost access to the ports. Right. Yeah. And that is actually something very pragmatic. And it's not only about ideologies or, you know, feeling lost, the loss of a province that was historically also very important of understanding Ethiopia as this Christian empire, because a lot of these kind of main points of reflecting what it is that the Ethiopian empire is, were actually in the highlands in Eritrea, right? And when Eritrea becomes independent, that aspect of kind of saying that's the old Aksumite kingdom uh, of greater Ethiopia is actually now in Eritrea. (laughs) But the really taunting aspect was here that Ethiopia, this large country, became overnight one of the largest uh, landlocked countries in the world, right? And then now has to beg for access to the ports. And so the border war, so between 1991 and 1997, everything's fine between those two countries because they fought together in the war and the Tigrayan leadership uh, had managed to uh, present a multi-ethnic coalition in Ethiopia trying to handpick <laughs> some of their coalition partners which became a problem for them later because they were quite autocratic in the way they kind of Mm -hmm. formulated what it is that they meant with diversity and who actually is allowed to present diversity, which is haunting them at this very moment, right? In the war uh, against Tigray. But uh, they also included in that new government that the right of self-determination so that one party could actually... Succeed from the government, from the Ethiopian state, and that was something that the Tigrayans had always had in mind. In case something goes wrong, we can still become our own independent nation. The border war was really problematic. That happened in 1997 because while all these things have been discussed, or you know, new ideas or ideologies of state formation have been put forward. There was never a demarcation of the borderline. At the same time, there was also never an agreement of the political economy that would run both countries. Ethiopia saw itself having to have access to the ports because it historically always had, while Eritrea tried to imagine itself as this new Singapore in Africa. Uh-huh. Losing, losing its hinterland, which is Malaysia, and kind of living on the export and trade things. And, and so they started to have all these kind of uh, tax, taxes on, 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 um, on refinery or using the ports. And, uh, and so the tensions were really about the political economy at one point. And I don't know if we have enough time about talking about the war. I think it would go too far. But I would say that parts of this border demarcation were really also about these two leaders not agreeing upon what it is that their political economy would end up being and um, also personal animosities in some ways. So. Okay, so they, they were allies and the immediate aftermath of the overthrow of the Derg 
was, okay, yeah, sure, Eritrea, go your own way, do your own thing, because we're assuming that you're always going to give us access to everything we need. And then things start to go badly, and Eritrea doesn't want to give Ethiopia that access. And so now everything is souring between the two former allies. And that helps explain why Eritrea is involved in this current conflict in Ethiopia. I mean, but this doesn't make sense. I mean, I understand it, but it just doesn't seem right because Abe Ahmed. Abe Ahmed, yeah. So the prime, current prime minister of Ethiopia was in the TPLF-led government, but he sees the TPLF as political rivals now. And so he is teamed up with the Eritrean president, Isaias, right? And is basically saying, we are politically vulnerable to the Tigrayan leadership. So Eritrea, why don't you invade Ethiopia in Tigray? Because we both don't like them. So it's cool that you're invading our country as long as it's because you're invading our political rivals. It is actually, as you said, because it's that saying, my uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. The enemy of the enemy is my friend. And so what you see is there was always a hierarchy between the EPLF party and the TPLF party. Okay. So the EPLF party historically has always seen itself as more superior uh, within the conflict. And uh, the TPLF party was the junior party. Now, when Eritrea became independent, suddenly the TPLF party rises okay. like, really into power and runs all of Ethiopia under the umbrella of the multi-ethnic coalition party. But really everybody knows the real power within that multi-ethnic curtain is the TPLF party in Ethiopia. Okay. And they were really harsh, right? And so they really prosecuted all forms of political opposition okay. since they were in power. And I mean, the most ridiculous part was actually in 2015, there were national elections in Ethiopia. And already in, 20, in 2010, you had national federal elections and the multi-ethnic party won, I think, uh, 96% of all the seats in parliament. So then that's already quite a lot. Very, uh, you know, <laughs> very unusual. Then in 2015, people were actually talking about, so what is that party going to do when the elections are taking place? Because they can't really back down, right? You can't say 95% suddenly <laughs> because then that fake number. <laughs> so you have to go up. And they did. They said they were elected by 99%. Oh, my God. 99.6%. So that was a slap in everyone's face. And that's also when it actually started to crumble because the government completely lost oversight about what, you know, what was going on on the ground because they have eliminated, they had now eliminated all forms of opposition. And a lot of those Oromo activists that became really important later on were also imprisoned and really excluded from all forms of political power. 
So the TPLF party has really then become that enemy within the country, even though those people that were sitting in the multi-ethnic coalition party that were running these, let's say, 11 federal uh, regions, they were also as corrupt, <laughs> you know, as mm -hmm. when you were talking about Abi Ahmed, he actually was the intelligence uh, minister uh, in that Oromo region, and he did horrendous things in the name of for the TPLF party. But there's also this public amnesia because when he came into power, he kind of presented himself in, in terms of forgiveness and love and peace that people were really happy to just follow that after these, you know, two decades of really harsh autocratic ruler uh, um, dictatorship. So when he comes into power, he's, you know, half Muslim, half Pentecostal. His wife is Orthodox. He's like the African uh, Obama in that. <laughs> Everybody is just like, whatever he says, we go with it, we fly with it. And Djibouti, the port of Djibouti was really important. The Chinese are sitting now in Djibouti, right? And for Ethiopia, it's getting more and more complicated to import goods or to export goods because they have to pay almost 50% on tax. So they are also very interested in finding alternatives. They're looking to Somalia. So I'm sorry, wait. So because of this long simmering tensions between Ethiopia and Eritrea, Ethiopia's outlet to the sea is basically just through Djibouti. Yeah. Okay. And so this is one of the reasons why Abiy Ahmed makes peace with Isaiah. Okay. Yeah. So then you see uh, when he comes into power and apparently Isaiah Safroki has always said he is willing to talk about peace, but not as long as the TPLF party is in power. Uh, now there's all the, the back and forth behind the scenes that people are like, you know, he's going to be in power now and we can broker actually some kind of relation. So the peace treaty in 2018, uh, in June 2018, is being established between those two leaders. It's just between them. We don't know exactly what it entails, but when uh, the, the four points are being discussed, it actually says... Uh, we will have open borders and the access to the sea, to the port is very important. And we will kind of have these economic relations. So at that point, you know, you see that uh, suddenly a relationship has been created between these two countries. There's no reform in Eritrea happening. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, no strings attached, basically. And so Eritrean refugees, we have at that time over 180,000 Eritrean refugees in northern Tigray really don't know what to do because they know they can't go back to Eritrea. Nothing has changed despite all the peace talks. But the world is like so delighted that, you know, these two enemies, former enemies have found peace. I give uh, Abiy Ahmed the Nobel well, Peace Prize. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is actually, so that happens uh, on the back of really a lot of uh, unspokenness about what it means to talk about peace but what is very clear from the beginning is that Isaiah says, well, I cannot give you the port or anything else unless that TPLF party is totally out of power. But at that time already, we see that the TPLF party reckoned with its own failure. And so they have most of the cadre has moved back to Dubai and has kind of left Addis Ababa, which is the political center. And then there's a lot of talk later on, you know, in 2020 about a potential attack by Eritrea. 
And, and so the start the war starts. And what people have said is that they feel that Abi had to get rid of the TPLF party in order to also deliver on the promises that he made along with the peace treaty that would be, you know, economic relations, reestablishing uh, the, the port, the trade um, to, the, to the Eritrean ports. I mean, there's so many things about it, but basically the common enemy, <laughs> the TPLF party for Eritrea and the Ethiopian federal government the federal, yeah, the, the, the common enemy was actually the TPLF party, which was then now in Tigray, right? And okay, right. So the, the party is not in power in the central government. It's back in its home territory. And so what what is what is Isaiah's, I mean, does he just want to like kill the entire leadership of the TPLF and then he'll let Ethiopia access the ports? I mean, like, what is the end game here? Yeah, I think at the beginning, it was really just to kind of make sure that there's no political power invested or entrusted in uh, in the hands of the TPLF party. And um, you know how it is sometimes with conflicts, they escalate even now about Russia and the Ukraine or Yemen for that matter. So I don't think the idea was really to kind of have a form of genocide committed in, in Tigray, but really to make sure that they are not in power anymore. And, and the problem became then really because they were all in Tigray. And so the military offensive um, was targeting not only TPLF cadres, but really going after women and children as well. So you have all these kind of reports, uh, atrocious reports of rape and, and, and murder of women and, and children, actually. And, and you know, also the T, then you have the emergence of the Tigrayan Defense Force, who then also commit forms of atrocities uh, in the Amhara region or against other ethnic groups. And so there's a whole dynamic, but obviously the federal government is in power and has, you know, drones that they got from Turkey and from Russia. Um, so they do have superiority when it comes to the artillery that they can use and the technologies. This is Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm joined in the classroom today by UIC Bridge to Faculty Anthropologist, Dr. Sabine Mohammed. That whole story of, of peace and the Nobel Peace Prize, it never, so, you know, people have depicted it as a, a, a total surprise, right? That how do we understand this turn from a peace Nobel Prize winner to basically a warmonger in power. And I would say that actually the problem was has, has been there from the very get-go, that it was never clear what that peace treaty meant for the people on the ground. Yeah. And, and so 
when the borders were open between uh, Eritrea and Ethiopia, and that means basically between Eritrea and Tigray, because Tigray is bordering mm-hmm. um, with Eritrea, uh, we had 10,000s of Eritrean Eritreans fleeing out of Eritrea to <laughs> Ethiopia, right? So if, if it was such a good news, then, and that's why they had to ultimately close the borders again. So, so I think there was always this kind of wanting or desire that this piece was a real piece, but it had never any substantial footing, even though people were willing to go uh, at length uh, to make sure that it would happen. But it was never grounded in kind of requirements or like bullet points that would tell right. you what it would mean. Is it a reform in certain aspects? Was the surprise among Western countries or was the surprise within Ethiopia? I mean, for sure, the West really ate it up (laughs) because if you look at Abi, he's a very charismatic um, leader. He was 42 years old, very young, also very good look. I mean, you know, uh, photogenic for like the media appearances. He spoke the right words. So I think there was for the West, this moment of finally we have someone who can actually, who's educated, he has a PhD as well, who's educated, who actually knows the TPLF party, who knows all these other different groups. The Oromo uh, movement was also kind of elevating him because he had this Oromo. He was also uh, Oromo. And so that that meant for them that he would be somebody in power um, and representing them because Oromos have never been in power in Ethiopia. So so he has been really celebrated in the West, but also in Ethiopia, because there has been this desire to finally have someone to bring everyone together. Mm. Like Tito in Yugoslavia, right? Who had a mixed parentage and yeah. Yeah, and this charisma, basically. Yeah. He's very charismatic. And, you know, he reminds me of Zelensky in some ways, Hmm. because there's also when he kind of presents himself, sometimes in military outfits or in T-shirts or in a very slick suit. And so there has been also some affinity and playfulness of him with the media. Uh, and speaking about certain aspects. So, yeah, I, I feel in Ethiopia as well as in the West, but for different reasons. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is like a recurring theme, right? So the West has this narrative that, and I'm talking about like Euro and Euro-Americans, the white West has this narrative about the lack of sophistication among countries run by brown people. And they don't take the time to understand these divisions and the history and the rivalries and what those are based on. And so then it's just like, aha, problem solved, you know, or in Iraq, they'll treat us as liberators. And we completely don't understand the difference between Sunni and Shia. And even if we did understand the religious differences, we don't understand the power differences between the minority oppressing the majority. And now we want a democracy, but the oppressed majority is now going to be in charge and what that's going to mean. Right. And it's just like everywhere. It doesn't matter where it is because Euro and Euro-Americans think that 
everybody else is so primitive and unsophisticated. And then they're surprised when there is as much political competition and issues as there would be anywhere else. You would think at some point they would learn. You would think at some point someone would say, you know what, I I bet this country is a little bit more complicated than we're giving it credit for. So maybe we should like figure out what's actually going on. Yeah, and I, I could not agree with you more. I really couldn't agree more because there's almost a flatness when it comes to talk, uh, talking and understanding conflicts uh, within an African context, for example, where I am working in, or the power differentials. And it's just seen to the lens of war and conflict and irrational kind of decision-making. Tribal affiliations. And and tribalism, right? And so even the fact that Abi, for example, after 2015 in Ethiopia, if I can just repeat that for a second, after 2015, the real problem starts, right? The cracking starts with the 100% election. (laughs) A friend of mine uh, in Ethiopia, he said to me, I never knew that we actually lived in a paradise. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I thought only in paradise is everything perfect. And we seem to have like perfect numbers. <laughs> so, so, but that moment and that moment, that actually very day, I think the Ethiopian government was doomed to fail, right? Because it was just too much pressure at this point. Elections have not really worked. I think there were the 2005 elections and they were kind of fair. And then there was violent outbreak afterwards. Mm -hmm. But then when you have these protests coming out in 2016, they start off with like, you know, something banal as the master plan in, in the capital city of Addis Ababa, which basically is like Berlin and enclave, right? Addis Ababa is an enclave, enclave, a Romo uh, region. And so the master plan basically entailed uh, an enlargement of the city, which would then be at the cost of the farmers. Mm. And while the farmers did get some money for the land, it just was not enough. Mm. Students, of course, said then this was, you know, students kind of rallied around this and said, this is not okay, and so on. And there was a new president, uh, prime minister in power, so he was a weaker prime minister. And he canceled the master plan in 2016, which was a total surprise for Ethiopians. They were shocked that actually they were hurt, you know. And so you have then even more protests coming (laughs) as a response to it, because, you know, if that works, then what else could work? Right. And it becomes very clear in 2017, this government, this ethnic federal state and this multi-ethnic coalition it can't work anymore. The TPLF dominance is really waning. And then you have this question, okay, who would be the, this person? They had someone, anyway, it's Abi Ahmed, total surprise for many people. He comes into power and then is really celebrated instantly in Ethiopia as well as in the world. But nothing had changed, you know? Like what I always thought was surprising, there was no election. He was just appointed. So even the legitimacy that he had was basically just his appearance, his charisma and the dreams that people put onto him, Mm. but not really what he did. He didn't do anything except then saying in one of his, in his first speech that his dream is actually that he saw, what was it? A a road connecting Addis Ababa with Asmara and with the port of Eritrea. And, and, you know, a couple of days later we see 
that both countries have conversations and talks about approachment, which of, of course was already In the uh, works. initiated before he kind of could speak to it. For me, it's like, there are these power differentials, there are all these backdoor channels. And so if we just look at the outside or think, oh, okay, now finally we have someone who looks great on TV. There's also an aspect of condescending uh, forms of politics that are playing, that are taking place in Ethiopia. Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. We are definitely going to have to do this again because there's so much that we didn't get to. But I just want to say, Dr. Sabine Mohammed, thank you so much for joining me in the politics classroom today. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Dr. Sabine Mohammed is a Bridge to Faculty Postdoctoral Research Associate in the Department of Anthropology at UIC. If you'd like more information about topics covered on this episode, head over to the bookshelf section of thepoliticsclassroom.org. Thanks for joining me today in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros from the Political Science Department at UIC. Join me next week as I interview a UIC political science alum about Illinois electoral politics. And I promise I didn't bribe him to secure this interview. Until then, that's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed. <laughs>